Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregor from bearmarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your marriage, your parenting, and your sex life. And I am joined today on episode 186 of Bear Marriage with my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach. Hello. We are in the middle of our launch for She Deserves Better. And we have the book actually finally in our hands. It's awesome. Like phys- the physical copy, it's so pink and it's so pretty and it's so big. <laughs> I know it's weird. I get such a, it's such a heavy book and we wrote it and we know that there's a lot of words. We know that it's a lot. And then you actually hold it. It's like, oh, it's like a legit big book. Yeah. And it's fun. There's lots of cool charts and diagrams. So that launches April 18th. Um, there's a ton of pre-order bonuses if you want to get it early, including a free copy of the audio version when that lands, I think probably around the middle of May. Um, so check out the link in the podcast notes where you can get She Deserves Better early. Later in this podcast, we're going to be filling you in on the definition of two terms that keep coming up in our launch team, DARVO and spiritual bypassing. So our launch team has really loved how we covered that and She Deserves Better. And we want to fill you in on that too. But first, we're actually going to introduce you to another book that is recently launched by one of my favorite people, Jasmine Holmes. And so will you welcome Jasmine as we talk about shame? I am so excited to bring back to the podcast one of my favorite people, um, Jasmine Holmes. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing great. I'm. I we've been looking forward to this conversation, and oh, yes. all kinds of things happened. And like finally, I get to talk to you, which is great. Um, I think we talked like was it just before Christmas about? It was. Yeah. So we were talking mm-hmm. about one of your other books, Carved in Ebony, which I really loved about some of the history of African-American women who did amazing things for God yes. in, in the U.S. So especially homeschoolers, but everybody needs to read it. But like if you're a homeschooler, it's a big, great curriculum. But if you just need some encouragement and just inspiration, it's great. Um, but you have a new book out, which fits in so well with our new book. So I'm like, yay, we can do this together. So it's all about shame. And it's called Never Cast Out How the Gospel Puts an End to the Story of Shame. And you got personal on this one. I did. Yeah, yeah. I did. Really good. Because I think this is something that honestly, any woman can relate to. Just mm-hmm. feeling like you are not good enough. There's something inherently wrong with you. So before we jump into it, let me know, what do you think is a good definition of shame? That terrible feeling of inadequacy and wanting to hide that we have when we've either done something wrong or are experiencing a feeling of being wrong. Um, And I differentiate between those two because sometimes shame is because we did something wrong and we feel really bad and we just Mm -hmm. feel like we can't even Mm -hmm. look at it because we feel so terrible about it. Um, But sometimes it's just because we have failed to meet a standard that is not a biblical one and not a moral one. Right. You know, I have these moments where like I'll be driving in the car and like a memory will come back of some time where I did something stupid. And like, as soon as it comes back, I turn on the radio and I try to change the channel and like anything to distract me. So you don't yes. think about these things, right? Yes. Oh my yes. gosh. Yes. I <laughs> Like that terrible, it's a, mine is in my chest. It feels like cold mm-hmm. in my chest. And I'm just like, oh my God, I can't, I can't yeah. look at that. I can't think about yeah. that. Yeah. La, totally. la, 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 la. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Or like, how about when you're trying to fall asleep at night? And all of a sudden, all the embarrassing things that you've ever done. I used to, I so I'm an extreme introvert. And so I would like hang out with people and be more extroverted and talk more than normal. And then that night I'd go to bed and I would always dread the bedtime after hanging out with people because I'd be like, oh, I said, I said this or I said that. And I hope they didn't take it that way. Or I was awkward here. I was, I would just like go back over everything and feel so much shame. Yeah, I know. It's like our inner dialogue is terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so you've already alluded to this a little bit, but what role has shame played in your life? Mm. For me, it has been, I call call it my constant companion, um, Mm. my frenemy. Uh, The the friend part is just because it's been there forever. And the enemy part is because it drives me crazy. But I have experienced shame since I can remember. My first memory is of feeling shame. Um, Mm. And... I think, you know, for a lot of reasons, uh, being a pastor's kid, being the oldest of a lot of children, oldest daughter, super conservative household, um, even more conservative surroundings than my household, homeschooled, you know, it's just this perfect, it was the perfect storm of shame. Yeah. And I love how in the book, you also talk about how there's specific ways that women in particular can feel shame. 
mm-hmm. you know, or even that there can be racial generational shame. Can you speak to that a little bit? Absolutely. Um, this, so for me, you know, for the, the racial aspect growing up as the only black woman in my evangelical surroundings, mm. just had a lot of baggage from people just saying crazy things. I was saying to an interviewer the other day, I was like, you know, when I, I you're really pretty for a black girl, or you'd be pretty if you were, if you weren't black or, oh, oh my, my gosh. Goodness. Oh my gosh. And when I was in my, I got married when I was 24. So relatively young, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but in my circles back home, kind of old, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was like 22, 23, people would say things like, oh, like at least, at least one person was like, oh man, I feel like if you were not black, you'd be married already. I think that some people just don't want to marry you because you're black. And I'm like, thank you so much for that information and that insight. <laughs> um, really appreciate it. Um, but then it can also come in with just thinking about the past of black Americans. You know, I do a lot of work in history. We talked about it last time we talked about, um, the black women that I love to research in the historical periods. A lot of people are like, why are you talking about slavery? Why are you talking about oppression? Why are you talking about that time of debasement? And it's really because they feel shame. It's, they don't want to think about this, oppression and debasement because it makes them feel shame. It makes them feel small. It makes them feel lesser than. And so they're like, I need a story of victory. Like I need a story of accomplishment. And then on the flip side, the shame of some white readers who were like, I don't want to read about white supremacy. That makes me feel bad. That makes me feel shame for the ways that I benefit or from the ways that my family has benefited or from the ways that people might think that I benefited, even though I haven't benefited, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's so much tied into that. And then for women specifically, there's so much shame. Um, Brene Brown says it so well when she talks about how women just are, we're supposed to be everything all the time, 24 seven. And anytime that we're not meeting that impossible standard, that exacting standard, shame just rears its ugly head. Yeah, it's, it is, it can be so exhausting. And so we know this, like when you talk about shame, everybody knows it's a bad thing. Like we, we say Mm -hmm. it's bad, but at the same time, in some ways, like we welcome it, like our inner dialogue is often welcoming it. Like, like how are some ways that we can actually think that shame is sanctifying or Mm. is good for us? I think really often we confuse it with conviction. We think Mm -hmm. I feel really bad and that must be the Holy spirit because our experiences (laughs) of Christianity are so tied up in, in feeling self-loathing, right? Like you're Mm -hmm. filthy rags, you're, you're debased, you're born in sin, shaped in iniquity. You are, you know, and all those phrases are biblical phrases, but as Christians, we kind of tend to forget that they talk about us without the cross, before yeah. the cross. Um, and even before the cross, God still clothed Adam and Eve with righteousness, like even yeah. before Jesus. So, you know, it all those things are talking about us without God. All those things are talking about us without Jesus. Like uh, we're, we're, you know, on the one hand, our good works are filthy rags, Isaiah says. But on the other hand, from the beginning of time, God had a plan to ransom us. So even before we even make the profession of faith, we're already precious enough in God's sight for him to set it up so that we can make that profession of faith. So I think people often pull these verses out of context and make them this entire narrative of how we're supposed to be feeling about ourselves and our actions from, from jump, like from the very beginning. Um, and so I know for me, a lot of times it'd be like, well, I feel bad. That must be God talking to me (laughs) (laughs) because I had no concept of God speaking to me with gentleness or kindness. It had to be condemnation. Yeah. I sometimes picture God, like a giant magazine cover in the sky, right. With seven ways you could get more done today. And oh my gosh, yes. Yes. <laughs> and six ways you could be more productive. So he, he's looking at you and he's kind of thinking, okay, Jasmine, you know, I love you, but man, I wish you could just do this so much better. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, you could have, you could have done this today. Like, yeah. And even like, I just, I'm looking like, um, uh, an exhausted pigeon right now. Cause I just, uh. I just was on my treadmill and I have to cut myself off because I do 50 minutes. So I try to do 50 minutes of exercise three times a week. That's what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to make it not punishing. And I'm trying to not make it about losing weight. I'm trying to just make it about doing 50 minutes of exercise to be healthy, you know, for my blood pressure, for my, for the mm-hmm. dopamine. Right. But every time I get on my bike or my treadmill, I have to have this inner conversation with myself of this is not about calories burned. This is not about pushing myself past the 50 minute mark. 
this is not about because so much shame is tied into just the act of me moving my body. And when you look, if when you like really zoom out, that's crazy. That's crazy. (laughs) I'm a mom of three and I have so much work to do. And I'm taking time out of my day to exercise and do something good for my body. And even that is so riddled with the shame of, well, I should be deadlifting 300 pounds. I should be working out for an hour and a half. I should be like, as though God is really in heaven being like, mm, she only did 50 minutes on the treadmill today. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, but that's, that's exactly how I feel. Like that's the unhealthy relationship with, and I'm not even going to say it's an unhealthy relationship with God because I don't think that really is a relationship with God. I think that's a relationship with my flesh, with the voice of the enemy that is masquerading as a relationship with God. Um, mm-hmm. because I really, I don't think that God is actually actively sitting up in heaven and being like, mm, girl, that number on the scale is not what I want for you, <laughs> but that's, that's how I treat him so often. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about too, the way we talk to our kids, like we, we almost forget that they're made in the image of God. Like mm-hmm. if the, cause the way that we frame children is, oh, you need to, you need to get control of them from the very beginning because they have such a natural sin bent and they're going to, yes, you know, we need to break their spirit. And it's like, no, kids are made in the image of God, but there's also such thing as child development. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. And, and kids don't necessarily like often it's just impulse control and emotional regulation issues. And they're just not old enough. It's they're not just that they're trying to figure it out. Yeah. They're not deliberately disobeying you. They mm-hmm. just, they just need to figure stuff out. And they do. often the way that we talk to them is so based on, on our view of how God sees us too. Mm-hmm. Like worm theology. I've heard people call it like we are exactly. just worms. Yes. Yeah. I feel a lot like um, a lot of the teaching about children and like I'll I'll talk to older, you know, older relatives in the South, man. And they'll be like, he's manipulating you. And I'm like, you mean he's trying to survive by doing what he can to get what he thinks that he needs? Yes, that is what he's doing. (laughs) Masterminding and gaslighting and trying to take advantage of me. No, that's not what he's doing. And, it, you know, it's such a, to them, it seems like a subtle difference, but it's actually not subtle. It takes, yeah. it, it, it was, it was mind blowing for me to, to have my own children to start reading about development. Cause before I got married, I was like, oh, I'm going to be that mom. Who's going to have them all in line, walking in a row like ducks, you know, doing, <laughs> doing all the stuff. Right. Right. And my, my husband and I, we, so I'm the oldest of nine and my husband was like, we're going to have seven kids. And I'm like, yeah, we're gonna have maybe eight kids. And we're going to homeschool all of them. And we're going to have them all just under control, doing everything right. And being everything to everybody. And it just took my first child. And it wasn't even a sense of like, it took my first child and he wore me out. And I was like too exhausted to do the things that I was going to do more. So it took my first child and actually seeing him in a loving way mm-hmm. and being like, Oh, this isn't, this is a person. This is not just a little accessory that reflects me. This is a person that is actually meant to reflect Christ. And so how, how, how am I treating this person that is a reflection of Christ? And am I instilling shame in him? Am I telling him, you know, you should be all these things that are not actually scriptural. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Okay. I want to read to you a quote from your book. So this is something that you wrote that, that really, that really stood out to me. You said, in my mind, shame was a tool that Jesus was using to whip me into shape or a byproduct of the fact that I just needed to be trying harder. Mm-hmm. Shame was something that belonged in my Christian walk as a reminder not to step out of line. I viewed shame as a frenemy of sorts. Like you said earlier, it tortured me. Yes, but surely it sanctified me as well. Whoa. <laughs> And then you go on to talk about like these three faulty gospels that women have with regards to shame. Can you run us through what those three are? Yes. Um, and all, all hail my editor, because uh, mm-hmm. these three categories were her. I was just throwing things at her. Like there's these, all these different ways. And she was like, I feel like these fit into three categories. <laughs> that just made me sound really good. Thank you, Ashley. <laughs> um, but the first cat, the first would be, I think what a lot of more conservative Christians are maybe afraid of when they pick up my book. Cause they're like, you want to get rid of shame. So that's the shake it off. That's the, I should never have to feel shame at all. 
I, when I feel shame, I'm just going to tell it that I am a perfectly beautiful butterfly and nothing that I ever do is wrong. And everything Mm -hmm. that I ever do is perfect, even when it hurts other people. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of a caricature of the way that the the world works, right? That a lot of Christians see the world. They're like, the world is just shame-free, but actually the world is really shaming um, because the world doesn't have the gospel. So they don't have a list of, you know, they don't have the do's and don'ts. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They just have shame. Um, And shame actually keeps the world in check. Um, We like shame in certain contexts. I'm a big fan of criminal minds. And a lot of of the people that they deal with don't experience shame. Um, So we need to experience shame. We need the experience of shame. Um, But it's a very base emotion. It's not, it's not the higher calling that we have. So shake it off doesn't work because it creates a really scary society where people just do what they want, whenever they want, to whoever they want. Mm-hmm. Um, the second would be the using it as a motivator, using it as motivation. Um, and this works for some people. I was reading this book by um, a Christian influencer a few that came out a few years ago. It was really popular. And she kept using all this imagery of like, oh, the reason you're fat is because you don't get up off the couch and exercise or you don't, you know, and I'm like reading this book. And I'm like, you like this? Like, y'all like this? <laughs> but for some, for some people, it works. They're like, you you called me you called me fat no i'm going to get up and i'm going to prove you wrong and i'm i, I am going to work out and i am going to get stronger and i and i'm going to you know and um even so for me that doesn't work i'm if you call me fat and say that i'm on the couch eating bonbons i'm going to be like fine i'm going to eat bonbons even harder <laughs> that's my personality so i for some people it doesn't work but for the people that it does work for it creates this lack of compassion um it kind of the way that i think that you alluded to it earlier when you were talking about parenting the way that we disciple ourselves is the way that we disciple others and Mm -hmm. so if shame is our motivator then that's how we're going to motivate other people um and when shame doesn't motivate other people we're going to think that they're less than us because the highest person the highest type of person is motivated by shame it's great And then the third way would be to put it on other people. And we kind of see that in the garden when God asks Adam why he ate the fruit. He's like, this woman, so puts it on Eve that you gave me, puts it on God. And then Eve is like the serpent. It's kind of the shifting. And I I see this a lot with um, women. And I'm not saying this in a like, I'm not like other girls kind of way because I have been guilty of it myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the, so for instance, say my house is, dirty i'm looking over the computer screen um because my house is obviously perfectly clean right now but i'm imagining that if it was dirty, uh, <laughs> and i thought oh man but you know what i went to so-and-so's house and her house was even dirtier than mine so i'm doing great or i went to this other so-and-so's house and her house was really clean neat and tidy Because she's probably like really obsessed with it being clean and tidy and she's not chill and laid back like I am. And she's not as fun of a mom as I am. And she just can't relax. Her house has to look like a hotel. She has to. So it's just kind of trying to tear down other people or bring other people Mm -hmm. down a few pegs so that our shame isn't as loud in our own ears. Yeah, I see that a lot in marriage stuff. Like, like you'll hear someone say, I mean, yeah, of course, marriage is sometimes drudgery and your husband isn't always Prince Charming, but at least he's not sleeping around. Like, like, oh my gosh. Yes. You know, like, yes. <laughs> yes. Like we do, we say, well, at least this isn't happening. So as a way to, yeah, to minimize it and to make yourself feel more on top of the heap. Right. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So sometimes I like how you said too, like sometimes shame tells the truth, but sometimes it lies. And how do we know the difference? It really is connected to our walk with God. It really is connected to our abiding with Christ. If we're far from Christ and we're not in his word, telling the difference is just going to be like trying to play darts in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we are walking with God, we have context, right? We, we, can, we can stop and we can look and say, oof, I feel this feeling. What is, what is this? And, and here's the beautiful thing. Whether or not the feeling comes from the Holy Spirit, we have the same first steps of action, which is to go before the Father and talk to him about it. Either talk to him about it in repentance or talk to him about it in, please help me abide more in you so that this feeling will diminish. But either way, the answer is to go to God with the feeling. But also, what does the Bible say? Like, have you actually actively done something wrong or are you concerned with impressing other people? 
are you actually feeling conviction from God, from standing in the presence of God, or are you feeling downtrodden because of how you look in the presence of other people? Um, those are just like some of the questions mm. that can be asked, but there are so many different ways that we can approach this if we're willing to have frank conversations with ourselves. Yeah. And I think, I think that can be really hard because especially if we've grown up in the church, sometimes even the Bible itself is so associated with shame, right? Like mm-hmm. you went to that women's conference 10 years ago and you swore that you would get up at six in the morning and mm-hmm. read your Bible for an hour every day and pray. And you haven't read your Bible for three months. And so now like whenever you think about God, you feel shame. Right? Yes, totally. <laughs> and and having, I think having a broader view of history has been such a help to me. And I know I'm always like, I'm a history. Let's talk about history. But <laughs> seriously, people could not even read the Bible until the last like hundred years every day. Nobody had Bibles in their house that they were like picking up and reading last hundred years, last 200, 300 years. You know, we've been able to like have Bibles at home and mm-hmm. have, have study together and actually look at, but that wasn't the case. So then are you saying that this medieval woman who couldn't read the Bible in her language was in sin? Yeah. Are you saying <laughs> that, you know, are you saying that my ancestors who were enslaved and like couldn't, weren't literate were in sin? Does the Bible say to read it every day? Does the Bible say to get up every morning really early and read it every day? Does it actually, I think so, so many of those, you know, people talk a lot about deconstruction and they, and they give it, a, they give it a really bad name. Um, but I have found watching the next generation of Christians coming up. Um, so I'm a, I'm a millennial and uh, that this next little bit is the Gen Z. And it's crazy to be a millennial because I used to be the youngest generation. Yes. And so people would be like, oh yeah, millennials. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm so young. And I have my whole life ahead of me. <laughs> and now Gen Z is like literally in their twenties. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm not, I'm not the, I'm not the young one anymore. I'm like the teenager. I'm like the, you know, the twenties the version. Um, but I, I love watching them because a lot of people, Gen Z gets a really bad rap. Yeah, I love Gen Z. Bad rap. I love Gen Z. I love Gen Z. They're so self aware. They're so (laughs) self aware. They're Mm -hmm. so willing to question everything. Mm -hmm. They are so compassionate. They are, they're trying so hard. They're Mm -hmm. trying so hard. But then they're also laughing at themselves when they fall short. And one thing that I love is their willingness to question the presuppositions that we've taken for granted. Because I believe that we serve a God who is capable of honoring that questioning. I believe that the Bible is capable of standing up to that questioning. And so even if it takes, you know, dealing with shame, even if it takes questioning things that you always took for granted, the Holy Spirit really is living and active. And I truly believe that God wants us to have that knowledge or he wouldn't have given us the scripture. He wouldn't have given us this guide. And Mm so question it, like hold it up and actually ask it really hard questions and grapple and be content with the fact that sometimes those answers don't come right away. When I first started questioning my ideas of biblical womanhood, those answers didn't just magically all come together right away. I really had to grapple with a lot and I had to go through a lot of shame to get to the other side. It's not even the other side. I'm not on the other side. I'm like in the middle, but like, <laughs> you're still, yes, you're saying, still trying, like yeah. I'm like in the middle of it, but I can see some, a lot of crap behind me. So I'm feeling really good about myself right now, but I still have to like go forward a little bit more. Um, my husband and I were just talking about money this morning and he makes more money than I do. And I was like, oh, because, because you make more money, I'm the person who should be doing all the stuff around the house. And he was like, where is that in the Bible? What does that even mean? <laughs> um, so even just, I'm still, still questioning, but I really think that the scriptures are capable of standing up to our questioning. So sometimes, a, sometimes really grappling with shame, especially when you've grown up in this super conservative, you know, Christian environment, especially when you're a woman who's grown up in a super conservative Christian environment, Grappling with shame means grappling with the Bible and really asking it. Did you really say this stuff that's making me feel this way? Because if you did, I you guys have explaining to do, and it can it can explain. Yeah, I love that. I think I think we read the Psalms wrong. We read the Psalms like David is writing something nice, and I think half the Psalms he's yelling. And I think if we could read the Psalms while Absolutely. we're yelling, yes, be a lot healthier. <laughs> Just like what what are you doing? Yeah. Yes, I yes. love that. I'm parachuting in here to tell you about something which is not parenting related. I <laughs> I know we are, we are in the middle of talking about she deserves better. But you know what? You, if you are an adult woman who is married, you deserve better too. Like you deserve awesome sex. And so if sex ain't awesome, if you just cannot figure out what all the fuss is about and you would really like to actually reach orgasm, we have an orgasm course. And so we're just here to tell you that and to tell you to check it out because if you're not reaching it, you should. 
and you deserve better. So check out the link. We've got it in the podcast notes. Okay. Personal story here that you wrote. You wrote um, this really insightful passage about how your parents taught you to protect yourself from the world. But that's that's that was kind of as far as it goes. Like the world's wrong. Let me let me just read this. So you were talking about um, who it was that your parents wanted you to be. And you said, as I look back, I can now see that what it meant to be her was mostly oppositional. I could tell you who I wasn't supposed to be much more easily than I could tell you who I was supposed to be. I could argue with you all day long about a woman's place, but if you asked me to paint a picture of womanhood that relied not on overblown caricatures of the cultural norms, but on purely biblical love and excitement for who and how God had made me, I would be lost. Mm-hmm. As soon as it looked like I was getting it right, I was mostly getting really good at the appearance of being right with God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I try, you know, I've been in therapy for seven, seven years now. Um, and I try to be gracious towards, in my ideals, towards my parents. I try to see my parents as adults who were grappling with real things as opposed to just seeing them as parents. Because right. I don't want to just be seen as a parent. Yes, <laughs> yes, I want my son. I want my son to be like my mom has had perinatal depression for the first six years of my life. Mm-hmm. She did her best, mm-hmm. and I understand her. And it wasn't perfect. And I'm going to talk about it in therapy about the ways that it wasn't perfect. <laughs> but I know that she did. So that's how I t- I try to look at my parents how I want to be looked at someday. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I look at my parents and I look at an, an, a lot of people in that generation of homeschoolers not raised in Christian families, um, trying to figure out the way forward for their family, having had a lot of traumatic experience that they did not go to therapy for seven years to deal with, mm-hmm. trying to not have their children experience that same trauma, all these things. And I understand and I get it and I love them. And I think that's the reason why I'm still able to have a good relationship with them, even though we're very different. Mm-hmm. And also I'm still dealing with the kickback of growing up in a community that was more centered on who we were not than who we are supposed to be. And the thing is, is that when you step back from that oppositional thinking and have to cast a positive vision for the future and a positive vision for family and a positive vision for who we are in Christ, and you can't articulate that, that is incredibly disorienting. And in the knots, And in the should nots, there's a lot of shame there. As soon as you step back from the shame um, and have to take the mic in your own hands, it's paralyzing. It's terrifying. It's terrifying to not be oppositional. It's terrifying to try to have a positive relationship with womanhood, with family, with education, with all of these things that we are taught to fight about constantly. Yeah. Yeah, so true. And I think I think understanding as well that a lot of that motivation was to protect. That's that's a lot of what we've said too in She Deserves Better, like our new book that's coming out because one of the points we made about, you know, dating rules and purity culture is I don't think people today realize how bad the 80s were. Like I grew up in the 80s. Teen pregnancy was really high. Mm -hmm. Um, Drug use and alcohol use was really high. Kids were super promiscuous and parents were like, how do we stop this? What are we supposed to do? Yes. And so they, they, yes, the pendulum swung way too far. Mm -hmm. Um, And somebody should have said, Hey, this is, this is not good at the time. And not enough people said that. So I'm not excusing it, but I do think that for many parents, it was just an honest desire to protect. And so we made everything into, you know, Christians don't date, Christians don't kiss, Christians court. They just are nothing like culture. And it, yeah, it was very oppositional. Yeah. Even while being products of, of the culture, like mm-hmm. even, even the ideas of purity that we were like, this is biblical and this is coming straight from the Bible was like, is it? Or is it is coming it? straight from Victorian England? I'm just yeah. trying to figure it out. I'm just <laughs> trying to see something. Like it's so, you know, in my, in my homeschooling circles, and I, I will say my family didn't do this much, um, I think because we're black. So, you know, what you can do? They, they'd be like, oh, the good old days. And, you know, I... <laughs> Yeah, I guess it was some good old days. Oh and my so goodness. It was just like, okay, maybe not. But like, so we'd always be like the good old days, except for like, you know, racism and slavery and segregation. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Abuse. And, <laughs> and there's too many like accepts, but a lot of times we talk about, you know, the good old days 
always. And it was kind of like trying to, trying to get back to this time. And the more that I've learned about history, the more I'm like, there's no getting back to anything. It's really moving forward towards greater understanding towards greater, you know, and I don't mean moving forward in in the sense of like, Oh, everything has to be this progressive, like, what does progressive even mean? Um, yeah. <laughs> even when I even when I say conservative, I'm always like, I realize that I'm like painting with such a broad brush. But you know, it it doesn't mean like letting go of values and letting go of you know the things that we believe that are that are really in the Bible. But it does mean actually interrogating what we've been taught was in the Bible um, mm-hmm. and actually interrogating the arguments that we just make because it's better than the world. Like there's got to be a better there's a better standard than just better than everybody else, better than the world, better than the next person, better than that. Like there there's, there's a higher standard than that. Mm -hmm. I love that. So when you start doing that though, when you start questioning the stuff that you were brought up with, that's scary. Yeah. You kind of feel like you're unmoored, you know? Yes. And that has a lot of shame too. Mm -hmm. It does. So how do you, how do you deal? How do you, how do you process something like that? Uh, remember when I said I've been in therapy for Yeah, time? I was going to say, I was just in therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of that, a lot of my husband, um, you know, Sheila, oh my gosh. I, okay, I don't know if I told you this last time because I say this story all the time because it's like my favorite little party trick of like, what the heck were you thinking? Mm-hmm. I started dating my husband um, March 25th, 2014. We got engaged June 11th, 2014. Okay. Mm-hmm. We got married October 4th. 2014. And I took a positive pregnancy test Thanksgiving week, 2014. Wow. So eight months after starting to date him, you're pregnant, you're married and pregnant. And had a a miscarriage that December with this man that I just had like, just. So I always say like, it's a miracle. It is a, it is miraculous. And and any young person that's like, oh, you move fast. I should do that. I'm like, you should not. (laughs) You should not. I feel like I I feel like somebody put a wool somebody I am a wool sweater that got put into the dryer and I got really shrunk and bent out of shape and then somebody had to come in and like re you know how they can like stretch it back out. They did all of that work, but I'm like but the best thing to do is just take the time to air dry. Just air dry. You don't have to fix anything. It's it's good. Yeah. Um but I will say it's just the work of the Lord because I ended up with somebody. I could have ended up with anybody. He could have been anybody. Mm-hmm. He could have been anybody. We say that all the time. We're like, you could have been anyone. And he yeah. kind of was anyone in some ways. It was like, oh, I just did. <laughs> and then for him too, because I was trying so hard to be this perfect picture of womanhood. Then he married me and he got the real version of me, which struggled with anger and struggled with depression and struggled with. And he was like, oh my gosh. So both of us kind of felt like false advertising <laughs> after we got married. But God was so gracious because he's given me a man who reminds me constantly of pulling myself out of shame, disrupting those narratives. Um, so he's been a huge part in it. Choosing choosing your spouse is so important. I was very quick with it. Um, mm-hmm. But having a husband who disrupts those narratives has meant everything to me. Um, so my husband, therapy, choosing community that disrupts those narratives has been very important to mm-hmm. me. It's just kept me so solid. Um, and I think also having a husband who understands, and it doesn't have to be a husband, right? It can be a friend or anybody in a relationship with you who understands the damage that that really is wrought in the kind of the kind of conservative circles that I was in. I think people think like, oh, but you, you know, my husband was the second guy that I ever kissed, and I didn't have sex until I got married. And um, you know, we we did the whole courtship thing and we had our huge wedding and, you know, everything. So when I, when I tell people like, Hey, that actually, that teaching was really damaging. People look on the outside and they're like, but everything looks fine, but it's so much internal damage and so much internal internalized shame that just eats away at my confidence in Christ my ability to have functional adult relationships. I remember my husband and I, we would fight all the time about things like, Jasmine, you can't just spend money without looking at the credit card. Like you have to look at what's in the account or like we have to budget or you have to drive somewhere or you have to like, it was just so many little things of like, I wasn't an, I wasn't an adult when I got married. I'd been living at home. I'd been in this very conservative environment. 
Um, I thought that I was going to get married to somebody who's just going to take care of my every need as long as I took care of his household and his children. And so it really took my husband to be like, I need you to be a grown up. Like, I, what is this? I, what I, <laughs> our first, we, I tried to break off our engagement because I like tried to, I was trying to get a, um, us an apartment. He lived out of state and I was trying to get the apartment. And I, he was like, you can take care of the apartment stuff. Right. And I was, I was so paralyzed. Like, how do you get an apartment? Oh, oh wow. my gosh. How do you, how, how do you, I just got my license, my driver's license two years ago. How do you get an apartment? How do you do all this stuff? And he just like took me to task and was like, babe, you've got to like, we've got to try. Like, you can't be so paralyzed. You're going to get stuff wrong. Like you got to move forward into adulthood. And so much of that is just dealing with shame, learning to grow up and differentiate myself from my parents and my surroundings. Yeah. I yeah. love that. I love that. You know, the last thing I was going to ask you, you kind of already, already answered, but um, maybe you have some more thoughts on this. Cause this is, this is beautiful. I think is what role does a good marriage have in God's healing from shame? Mm. Such, such an incredible role. Um, you know, a lot of, in a lot of ways and early on, my marriage was a source of shame because I was not who I thought I was going to be when I got married. I had all these ideals of who I was going to be when I got married. And then I had a miscarriage in December and I have always struggled with depression. I have always struggled with depression. Um, didn't know what it was. I have always struggled with anger, hit it really well. My husband was like, you have a terrible temper. And I'm like, nobody who knows me would say that. He'd be like, does anybody know you but me? <laughs> touche, touche. I mean, even my parents were like, she's a temper. Like, I mean, sure, when she was a baby, but like, no, she throws things. She's 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 mad. She's really mad. Um, and a lot of that was just me reacting to to shame because it was like, I don't, I don't feel you know, I don't feel like this capable wife that I thought I was going to be. I'm not this Proverbs 31 woman that I thought I was going to be. I can't, you know, I'm putting heavy quotes around this. I can't even carry a baby to term. Like this is one of my purposes in life is to have babies. And I can't even, I can't even do that. Um, And so, so much of it was just, we was, was me growing up alongside my husband, me, him just really pushing me towards more independence, him pushing me towards more, you know, I, I remember after I had my firstborn, everything was supposed to be perfect because now I've had this baby that I wasn't able to carry before. And I was so depressed. I was so depressed. I remember taking my little boy to the doctor and her being like, he's lost two pounds when he was 10 months old and me being like, how? And she said, I, I get it. You, you don't, you see him every day. So you're thinking that he's, you, you're used to the way that he looks. What is he eating? I said, doesn't eat. He just nurses. Well, he needs to eat food. And we need to think about maybe incorporating some formula. Mm-hmm. Talk about shame. Oh mm-hmm. my God. What? No. Breastfeeding all the way for two years. Even I no, I, I can't do formula. I can't, you know, and I just remember being in such a tailspin of my motherhood is just, I'm, if I'm not a good mother, then I'm not anything in my husband. Like you are a good mother, but he set me up a blog and he said, you always used to like to write. And I think that you should start writing again. And no, I left all that behind. I'm a mom now. I think that you should start writing again. And then a teaching job came open. Um, and he's like, I think you should start teaching again. Um, it's just two days. It was a two day a week teaching. I think you should start teaching again. And he slowly like teased me out of this. I mean, without him, without him giving me permission, I needed permission. Mm-hmm. Without him giving me that permission, which I don't need now, <laughs> but, <laughs> then, but then I did to move away from this cloistered, shame-filled idea of, of what womanhood and what motherhood and what wife wifehood was, I don't know where I would be today. We probably wouldn't still be married because I would have been very resentful of him and putting all of the trauma that I had brought into our marriage, I would have put it on him. And so, yeah, our marriage has been one of the main healing influences to the extent that I was at a conference, you know, talking about our marriage and the beautiful ways that my husband has just kind of like pulled me out of pulled me out of my shell, my shame shell. Um, And she was like, do you ever just feel like a really bad feminist because your husband is like literally (laughs) like a hero in your life? I'm like, you know what? If that makes me a bad feminist, that's fine. (laughs) Put me on the back of your horse and carry me to the promised land. I'll go. Yeah, (laughs) I'd rather be be here than where I was. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, thank you, Jasmine. Tell people where they can get your book. Yeah, nevercastout.com. Um, we'll have all the links to major retailers. 
Okay, awesome. So yes, again, the book is Never Cast Out, How the Gospel Puts an End to the Story of Shame by Jasmine Holmes. And it's so great to have you here again. We'll have to do this another time about Absolutely. your next book or something. But yeah, we love having you join us. So thank you, Jasmine. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I really love talking to Jasmine. She's just really fun. She's a fun person. <laughs> and uh, I hope I hope that people check out her book because I think these are important things to talk about. And, you know, last week on the podcast, Rebecca, we talked about trauma and EMDR because a lot of people, those are words that we throw around, but we don't always unpack and understand what they mean. Um, and shame is another one of those words that we don't always unpack and understand what it means. But in our launch team, as we as people have been reading through She Deserves Better, one of the things that they tell us that they didn't know about is the concept of Darvo. Yeah, we've gotten that from a couple people saying, I had never heard this before. And it's yeah. funny, because like, we've been talking about this for a couple of years now, like more behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we talk with a lot of people who are in kind of abuse advocacy spaces and that kind of thing. So we're kind of the kind of people who assume that if we've heard of something, everyone has. Yeah, because I always feel like I'm the last to hear about stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm embarrassed I didn't know what it was. <laughs> so anyway, so it's a great little tool. So what Darvo is, is it's just an acronym that describes the um, the method by which people's psychological resolve is worn down against abusive people. Mm-hmm. So it stands for deny, attack, and reverse victim and offender. Yep. And this pretty much just describes the method that is commonly used, kind of the pattern that we see with people who are being victimized or who are being gaslit or and end up, you know, becoming a victim to an abuser. Yeah. And so we, we showed how actually... A lot of our Christian teaching to teens is just Darvo. Yeah. We are constantly Darvoing teen girls. And so we have these pretty boxes throughout She Deserves Better where we give examples of how, hey, here's how this teaching is used to Darvo girls. So let's, do you want to just walk them through that? Yeah, sure. We can take you through a few of them. Okay. So here's here's one where we're talking about emotions. Mm-hmm. All right. Deny. Yeah, deny is you don't feel what you think you feel. And that's in a lot of these books. We see mm-hmm. things like, you know, you the heart is is fickle. You can't trust your heart. You mm-hmm. don't feel what you actually feel. Yeah, if you're upset, you're not really depressed. You just need to work on faith or yeah. whatever. Okay, how about attack? If you Attack is if you do feel that way, it's your fault because you don't trust God enough or you have allowed a demon to have a foothold on your heart. Right. So if you're upset, it is your fault. You you did did something something to cause it. Okay. And now let's reverse victim and offender. If you show that you're feeling that way, you're going to be a bad witness and you're going to hurt the church or even potentially threaten someone's salvation. Right. So now you, the person who is being hurt, are actually the one doing the harm. Yeah. What's the world going to think if Christians are walking around all depressed? Mm -hmm. Like you need to have joy. Joy is a fruit of the spirit, right? Right. I mean, we genuinely, we get told that. Okay. So let's walk through another one. How about Darvo and safety? In this part of the book, we were telling the story of you at youth group, actually, where there was a creepy dude um, who was much older um, and he, the girls were not comfortable around him. There was a credible accusation of sexual assault about this boy. Right. And you told the youth leaders and they told you that you were being judgmental. And that this boy needed Jesus. And we heard this over and over again in our focus groups too. And we saw, and we see it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it happens all the time. We've heard it over and over again. We see it in our literature. We, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So here's how that might play out in this situation. So Darvo and safety deny. He's a good kid and he deserves to be included. Attack. You need to learn to accept people you think are weird. Don't you think you're being a little judgmental? And reverse victim and offender. He needs Jesus. Do you think gossiping about him like this is going to help him come to the Lord? Yeah, and remember that all this is about <laughs> girls being like, hey, um, I'm pretty sure this guy's a rapist and I don't want to be at an overnight sleepover with him. <laughs> so like this, this is exactly what we're talking about, where it's like you, you belittle the problem, you go on the offense, and then not only do you attack that person, you make the, you make the actual like potentially a abusive person or the problem, the victim. Right. So, and this this is pattern that we see over and over again. Okay. How about Darvo and consent? And here's one that fits in with Vera's story that we shared with you, what, two weeks ago now on the podcast? Mm -hmm. So here's what, here's what she heard, right? So deny. If you had really wanted to not have sex, you would have stopped him. Yep. Or attack. What were you expecting dating a non-Christian? It takes two to tango. And here's the reverse victim and offender. 
Once boys get started, they can't stop without help. So if you want to be able to stop, it's safest to not even start. You put him in an impossible position and you should have known better. Yes. And pretty much all this just comes from Vera's story and the story of so many others we talked about in the focus group. Yes. So this, this is genuinely what happened. Except and that the deny victim and offender we were actually quoting Shanti Felton. From, from for Yeah, reverse, reverse victim offender, not deny victim offender. Right, reverse, reverse victim. victim. Yes. But the bigger thing too is that when we say this stuff, we're not saying that one person does all three of these. Mm-hmm. Not at all. What we're no. saying is that when we're we're steeped in a church culture that has these negative messages, you hear them throughout and they all work with each other to systematically tear down your psychological resolve, to systematically kind of get mm-hmm. under your skin, to convince you of things that don't actually, that aren't yeah. actually true. And that's what we were talking about with Jasmine. This, this is how shame can be formed because you feel like you were the one who did the wrong thing, even when you were the one who was wronged against. Mm-hmm. You feel like I somehow sinned against him and we can see this really well in the darvo and modesty so deny would be boys are just visual it's how god made them yeah there's not a problem here this is god's design yeah <laughs> okay attack would be you're dressing like someone trashable yeah it's your fault you shouldn't yeah. be dressed like that and if you re- if you recall from the um podcast we did a couple of weeks ago on the eight-year-olds who were intoxicating that was one of the exercises in secret keeper girl was to are you dressing like someone who is trashable and that idea of someone being trashable versus a china teacup is still in the 2021 edition of great eight great dates right so yeah still get to ask which friend is most trashable in 2021 anyway okay and then reverse victim and offender would be you are a stumbling block you are causing him to sin by what you are wearing exactly so he's not sinning against you by lusting against you and making you feel uncomfortable you are sinning against him by putting him in this impossible situation which you cannot get out of because god made him to lust and so it's all your fault yeah exactly and so is it any wonder that we hear from girls who say like well i was sexually assaulted by my boyfriend and then i i kept on thinking back to what i was wearing yeah and maybe i had incited the lust in him maybe i had just worn the wrong thing and it's yeah because they've been trained to already think those things yeah it's really it's really problematic so that is what darvo is deny attack reverse victim and offender and Mm -hmm. it is a strategy that is used systematically by abusers or abusive systems Mm -hmm. to make the victims feel like they are actually the ones at fault because if the victims feel like they are the ones who have done the wrong the victims will stick around yeah, because they don't, they don't, they aren't able to put to words what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. If the victims realize they're being victimized, they might leave. <laughs> and by saying it's systematic, that doesn't mean that it's conscious. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it's like a, a decided effort. Like, yeah, we're all, all of our youth group mm-hmm. pastors, everyone's getting together to be like, yeah, we're going to gaslight some girls today. No <laughs> one's saying that. It's just that what we ha- what happens is this kind of culture that is so male focused, the way to perpetuate a male focused culture is to silence women Mm -hmm. and the only way you can really silence girls is by convincing them that they don't actually have any problems and that they are the ones who are really at fault or else they'll speak up yep and And so yeah speak up and again what (laughs) what what people have found is that researchers have found is that these are just common things that are in abusive systems Mm -hmm. this is just how abusive systems work is it the deny there's a problem they attack the person who tries to speak up about the problem Mm -hmm. and then they reverse victim and offender okay there's another term that people really liked that we were using and she deserves better that people hadn't heard. And it's the idea of spiritual bypassing. Um, do you want to explain this one? Yeah, I'll just read the quick excerpt from our book. Okay. So in She Deserves Better, this is how we explained spiritual bypassing. There's actually a term for using religious language to avoid dealing with uncomfortable emotions, spiritual bypassing. Psychotherapist John Wellwood, who coined the term, describes spiritual bypassing as the tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. Instead of truly listening to the person's pain, we provide distance from unresolved feelings using God language. In practice, that means we make God sound indifferent to our pain, which God would never be. Spiritual bypassing focuses on spiritual platitudes, which may even be true, but ignores the deeper truth of God's compassion for us. It might be helpful for your daughter to meditate on his eye is on the sparrow when she is feeling stressed out, but telling her you don't need to be stressed because his eye is on the sparrow is invalidating. Shutting down someone's feelings is not shepherding their emotional health. If your daughter is crying over her Wheaties on picture day because she woke up with a zit on her nose and you tell her, 
Jesus can handle that. You're you're spiritually bypassing her. Yes, it is true, but she already knows that. And besides, it's unkind and unhelpful. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like <laughs> shut up. It's this the shut up and sit down. Like that's what they're trying yeah. to get you to do, right? Like people who are experiencing, and a lot of times it's a, it's a protective um, thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like we, if someone can't handle feeling someone else's pain. Mm-hmm. right like we especially see this around things like grief oh yeah oh gosh the things that people said to me in the week after my son died yeah like it was incredible like god just needed a little angel in heaven yeah um or it's not always easy to understand god's will but isn't it great that he has all of this in his control and it's like no <laughs> no the baby just died like yeah. it's not great <laughs> Yeah, and 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 just a lot of things like that. So when we spiritually bypass, it's like we're saying a lot of what we're saying is true, okay? Yes. But there's <laughs> there's a time and a place for everything. And mm-hmm. when someone is really hurting, when we speak those sorts of things over them, what we're really saying is, I don't want to talk about your pain. Your pain's making me uncomfortable. Yeah. So I'm going to say something which is going to shame you. This is, again, what Jasmine was talking about earlier. So much of, of Jasmine's story, again, is spiritual bypassing. Like, like it's shaming you for your feelings so that everybody else doesn't have to deal with them. Yeah, because in the way that it's shaming you is by, uh, is by implying that if you were simply more spiritual or if you were mm-hmm. more godly or if you were more focused on Jesus, then this wouldn't be bothering you quite so much, right? Like it, like it Mm -hmm. implies like the idea of, well, his eye is on the sparrow, so you don't need to be stressed implies that if you're stressed, you're not really remembering that his eye is on the sparrow. Exactly. So, and, and so I just, I I would remind people that this is something that we often do because we're trying to help people feel better, but check your heart and your, if you're in these situations and is it really that you're trying to make them feel better? Or is it that you feel awkward and uncomfortable and you want to end the awkwardness? Yeah. Is it that you want them to feel better because mm-hmm. it will make it you feel better? <laughs> yeah. Or is it just that you're looking for something to say? Because if you're looking for something to say and you don't know what to say, often the best thing to say is, I just don't know what to say. I am so sorry. Yeah. You don't need to, you don't need to say something that sounds profound because usually it's going to be utter crap. I'm going to be honest. Like yeah. if you're just pulling something out of your butt, don't be surprised when it's crap. Okay. Like that's all I'm going to say. That's that, that could be a graphic right that- there. <laughs> Yeah, if Becca says, if you're just pulling pull something, something out of your, your butt, butt, don't be surprised when it's crap. Yep. Okay. So that seems like a good place to end this segment, doesn't it? <laughs> so that is spiritual <laughs> bypassing. Um, and that is Darvo and that is shame. Um, but the good thing is that we can do better. Yes. We can do better for the next generation. Um, when we start to recognize these things that we often do pass on to people without realizing it, when we start to recognize the systems that do Darva, when we start to recognize our own propensities to spiritual bypass, when we start to recognize how we can shame people, then we can also stop because she deserves better. You deserve better. We all deserve better. So before we end, I want to read to you um, what if the new reviews that's come in on Goodreads for She Deserves Better. So Kelsey writes, this book is amazing. As someone who grew up in the midst of purity culture, this has debunked so many of the harmful beliefs I held as a kid and a young adult. I love the parts that can be read with my daughter so they don't have to take these bad messages upon themselves. Also to add, I was worried they would swing the opposite way in their beliefs, but they take a better approach than I expected. (laughs) They do focus on the importance of teaching our girls they have value and help helping them form their relationship with God so that they can follow the Holy Spirit's lead and hopefully choosing to save sex for marriage instead of using lies and scare tactics to convince them to stay a virgin. Also does a good job of reminding girls and parents that their virginity is not the most important way to show God you love him and you have so much value to him even if you have sex before marriage or are sexually assaulted. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I like that. I think people often are afraid that we're going in like some weird direction. And no, we're just like, hey, Jesus, that's just our, that's our message. Hey, like Jesus, let's look at Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and let's get back to, to who Jesus is and how we can live him out in our lives. So yeah, that was encouraging. I'm glad people are seeing that. Like I really, that makes me happy when people read our book and they see Jesus because that was always what we were aiming for. So that is all for this week. We will see you next week again on the next Bear Marriage Podcast. And remember, if you're pulling something out of your butt, it's probably crap. It's probably crap. (laughs) Bye-bye.